Welcome to Misfits Theology Podcast, where together we're learning to question our faith in order to cultivate a deeper trust in God. Enjoy. So welcome back to the Misfits Theology Podcast. Um, so uh, on, on the podcast today, I have Keith Giles again. He's a uh, second timer this time around. But uh, we actually tried to do this about four months ago and uh, epically failed. Uh, tried to <laughs> record it live on Facebook and it only picked up hit, uh, my audio. It didn't pick up his audio. And we also tried recording it during that Facebook uh, live and it also did not pick up. So we are going to redo it and <laughs> hopefully um, recreate that great conversation we had. So we're talking to Keith Giles about his book, Jesus Unbound. So, Keith, why don't you uh, introduce yourself a bit? Yeah, hey, Gabe, thanks so much for doing this, uh, and I appreciate you doing a, giving us a do-over here. That was a great conversation. It is a bummer we didn't catch it. But, um, yeah, so for people who don't know or just maybe you forgot, um, <laughs> my name's Keith Giles. I'm uh, uh, the author of Jesus Unbound. I've written a couple other books, um, and I'm in the process of writing a few others. I'm... I was licensed and ordained many years ago uh, in the Southern Baptist uh, persuasion, but I'm no longer, I don't really call myself anything like that anymore. I kind of just, I'm just a follower of Jesus. But um, yeah, I, I think the most significant thing was I kind of discovered uh, about 15 years ago that the gospel wasn't about saying a prayer. So I go to heaven when I die and that it was more about living, following Jesus in the kingdom right now today. Um, more about a gospel for my life now, not after I'm, I'm dead so much. Um, and yeah, so we, uh, um, my wife Wendy and I started a church. This was about 11 and a half years ago in Orange County, California. And, um, we met in homes. We gave all the offerings to the poor in our community and, uh, kind of learned a new way to kind of be the church. And that was, that was a significant thing in my life as well. And uh, back in October, uh, we moved to uh, Boise, Idaho for a job that unfortunately did not work out. But um, God's been carrying us ever since. We're doing really, really well and uh, trying to figure out what his next plan is. We started a house church here in Boise. Um, it's been going for a couple of months, and that's been great. And I, I'm just happy to talk to you, man, about this, uh, about this topic. Yeah, this is uh, definitely one of my favorite topics. So. It's fun to talk about. So so go ahead and, and tell us a bit about the book and, and why you wrote it. Yeah, so the, the, the book is Jesus Unbound. The subtitle is Liberating the Word of God from the Bible. And um, so one of the obviously one of the main things I'm trying to do is to um, help Christians understand that the Bible is not a magic book. Um, having one in your house or in your pocket, or even reading it, it's, you know, it's not going to by itself change your life. And, um, and I see these kind of things all the time. I see them on social media all the time. Christians sharing things about how the Bible will, will change your life. The Bible, you know, if you read the Bible, all these wonderful things will happen to you. And I would say if things happen to you, if good things happen to you, it's not because of the Bible. <laughs> It's because of what the Bible is telling you. Who It's about who the Bible is pointing you to. So um, the realization I had was that 
some Christians have have such a devotion to the Bible that it's sort of eclipsing their devotion and their connection to Christ. I mean, what the Bible, the Bible, if we're going to follow the Bible, if we're going to say we're going to be people of the book, then what we should do is recognize that the Bible never points us to the Bible. The Bible always points us to Christ. And so um, what I've noticed is, and this is why I wrote the book, was to sort of help Christians understand that um, that our devotion is not to the map, it's to the treasure. Our devotion is not to the, to the menu, it's to the meal. And unfortunately, we have Christians who are in love with the map. They're in love with the menu, and um, they're missing the point. Mm. Yeah, so that remind. So I just wrote a paper for one of my classes on uh, two different doctrines from fundamentalism. And I used the, the fundamentals, which are the four-volume source that came out in 1917. It's the textbooks for fundamentalism. And I in some ways was surprised about what I found. I did uh, inspiration and I did their views on mosaic authorship. And in inspiration, I ha- I found a, a, a quote in one of the articles and I'll just go ahead and read it. Uh, Munhall is the name of the guy that wrote this article says, and I quote, Jesus is the life and the light of man. The same is true of the scriptures. Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. The Psalms have said, Thy word is a lamp unto thy feet and a light unto thy path. In an inexplicable way, Jesus is identified with the word. And the word was God and the word became flesh. And quote, um, earlier on, Munhall says, uh, and I quote, that identification of God with the scripture, um, the scripture foreseen, giving it to it eyes, mouth and foreknowledge as a living organism equal with God, end quote. And so very blatantly identifies the Bible with God. And oftentimes I think that's kind of implicit to fundamentalism, but most of the time people won't come out and, and, and say that, um, you know, both of us come from Southern Baptist backgrounds, you know, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Bible, but no one ever mm-hmm. actually says that it's, it's implicit. So it was a little surprising for it to come out so explicitly in those texts. Um, I had a friend um, at a camp I worked with who was um, PCA, uh, Fundamentalist Presbyterian, and um, I asked, we were talking about the Word of God, like what is the Word of God, and I, I, I pointed him to First John, you know, which seems to be the clearest indication that Jesus is the Word, and I asked him, okay, what about, what about Jesus, and, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, and he said, well, Jesus and the Bible are the same thing. And so, so I think, you know, you talk about why you wrote the book and I think that this, you know, some people might think this is maybe a little bit extreme, but I think it's, it's, it's there. The critique is needed. Um, and so I'm really glad you wrote the book. It's a super great book. Um, but so, and I, and I think that brings us, that leads nicely into, so for you, what is and what is not the word of God and who and and why, sorry. Right. Wow. Um, I'm stunned, man, just hearing you read that quote. That was like, but I, you know what, the thing is, I have heard people say that. I mean, I've, I've been in conversations with people who have flat out said to me that, that um, knowing the Bible, you know, that the Bible basically is the same as knowing 
knowing the Bible is the same as knowing Jesus. Um, well, so I did this. I do this little thing in the book um, where I talk about. I say this: the Word of God speaks to you. The Bible is silent. The Word of God lives within you. The Bible is outside of you. The Word of God will never leave you. The Bible can be misplaced. The Word of God died for you. The Bible is not alive. The Word of God loves you. The Bible does not. And so I'm, I'm doing this because I want us to understand, like you said, go. let's go back to John chapter 1, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then the next step is not, and we bound him back into a book again. Um, the next step is that then Jesus says that if you love me and put my words into practice, the Father will love you, and the Father and I will come and make our home within you. So where is the word of God today? Bound in a book or living within us? Like that to me is the core misunderstanding, that, that Christians have gotten this idea that the word of God is a book and not that the word of God was made flesh and came to dwell among us and now dwells within us by his spirit. So sometimes what I try to do, uh, another thing I try to do to help Christians when I'm having these kind of debates with people and conversations with people, when they say, you know, that what, like, for example, we'll never know, you can never know anything about Jesus or about God apart from the Bible. I like to say, okay, so if I came to your house and took all your Bibles away from you, you're saying you don't know anything about Jesus anymore? You don't know God anymore? You, you can't hear God's voice anymore because I took all your Bibles? Now, some people might honestly say yes. <laughs> uh, I know some people that would say, yeah, that's right. But I think, honestly, most people, hopefully, most people would take a step back and say, well, no. I mean, I still have a connection with God, even if I don't have my Bible with me. And, and that's what I'm hoping to to help Christians understand that, yes, you may have first learned information about Jesus by reading the Bible. Sure, we all kind of begin there. But again, the Bible, the point of the Bible, what the Bible is telling us over and over again, what Jesus is telling us, what Paul is telling us, what the script, what the New Testament is telling us is that we can know Christ experientially beyond just what we read about him. We can know him intimately. In fact, that's kind of what we're encouraged to do is to move move from information to transformation right mm. and and i so i talk about um in when we get into conversations about knowledge i talk about i think we need to make a distinction between intellectual knowledge and relational knowledge you know an mm -hmm. infant knows its parents in terms of relational knowledge um, but it doesn't have intellectual knowledge. It doesn't know facts about its its parents. It doesn't know that its dad works down at the factory down the street. It doesn't know that its mom's right. favorite color is blue. Um, but it does have this intimate relational knowledge. And I think that that's the knowledge. Um, if you want to talk about, I don't necessarily like to use the term saved, but if you want to talk about what saves us, um, that's what saves us is that relational knowledge. It's not about intellectual knowledge. That doesn't mean, you know, we can't think, critically and um and use reason but it, it does um i think put it in its place so to speak right oh absolutely and, and that's something else that i developed in the book i talk about um that difference between 
because again, it's, and you know this, there's so many English words translated in our English translations of the Bible that are inadequate, right? So saved is one of them. Believe is one of them. Um, and I think no is another one where like when Jesus says, you know, now in John again, now this is eternal life that you would know the father and his son whom he has sent. And unfortunately, we just read those English words and we and, and it's easy for us to say, see, you eternal life is just knowing God and knowing Christ. And we we assume that's information, mm. right? Having in, having the right information about God and about Jesus. And unfortunately, evangelical fundamentalism today is all about, you know, orthodoxy is defined by having the right information about God and about Jesus. So if I give you a 10, 10 question test. If you answer correctly all 10 questions, you're a Christian, you're orthodox, and you're, you're going to go to heaven. That is not at all what Jesus is talking about. That word, know, to, when, when he says to know God and, to, and his son whom he has sent, that this is eternal life, this knowing, the knowing, the word there for knowing is gnosko in the Greek. And it's the same word for how a, a husband knows his wife intimately and she conceives and bears a child. So it's that kind of knowing. So now, now, whoa, hold on a second. Hold on a minute. So Jesus is saying eternal life is to intimately have a connection with, an experience with God and with Christ that conceives new life within us, right? That's the level of knowing that he's talking about. And unfortunately, again, we... We're stuck with sort of these inadequate English translations that kind of gloss over these really deep concepts that are, um, it's really unfortunate. So we end up with these very surface level, uh, understandings of, of what it means to know God and to know Christ. Yeah. Um, I, I almost thought you were going to, when you talked about a lot of different words that are not translated well, I almost thought you were going to, I wanted to interject rubbish. Go for it. Do you, do you, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and in Philippians, you know, when Paul says, I consider all rubbish, the Greek word is scubalon, and it does not mean rubbish. It means shit. No. Yes, <laughs> so, it really does. Yes, it really does. <laughs> which is, which is, is great. Um, yeah, I think that's, man, and, and knowing that the word gnosko, um, gnosko, right? Is that right? Yes. Okay, gnosko, yes. knowing that that, means is used um for intimate sexual relations between a man and a wife it that goes so far i mean it kind of i think it makes a lot of us uncomfortable but yep. it, it goes so far beyond intellectual knowledge sex is yep. not about intellectual knowledge you know it's no. <laughs> it's so um mystical maybe in a sense but so i want to go back briefly um so you talked about you know when people say uh, the Bible is how we know God. Um, and you bring up the point, you know, if I went in and took all your Bibles out of, out of your room, would, would you be barred from hearing the voice of God? Um, you know, I think, uh, I pointed this out to you in our last conversation, but, um, so I'll just quote, I, I wrote, I wrote this down someplace. So I'll just, I'll, I'll read it real quick. So, um, I'm, I'm sure at this point, someone is asking the question, isn't the Bible how we know Christ? This presupposes the scripture as our ultimate authority and as our primary way of knowing God and that Christ is limited to them, but only as someone limited to a set of writings after they have died. Only is your primary way of knowing someone through written text after the person themselves have died. 
This seems to lead us to a dead Christ and a denial of the resurrection. Charles Spurgeon is limited to text, but that's because he's dead. You can only know Charlie Boy through written text because he's dead. But yep. if Christ is really the living word of God who has been resurrected, then surely he's not limited to a set of writings. So, you know, I think that that, I don't think that people really, there's not a lot of uh, critical thinking, I think, that goes on when we when we think about what is the word of God and how do we know it. Um, we tend to, especially coming from fundamentalist evangelical backgrounds, we tend to have this filter that when the Bible says word of God, we immediately assume that's talking about the Bible. But mm -hmm. that's not something that the church has always done. Um, Athanasius, in his book on the Incarnation, he references um, Hebrews 4.12 for the, 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 the word of the Lord is a, a sharp two-edged, double-edged sword, that whole verse. Typically, evangelicals, we, we read that verse and we're like, oh, that's talking about the Bible. And that's why mm -hmm. we memorize that verse is because we think it's talking about the Bible. But Athanasius, who lived like 1,600 years ago, um, so obviously not a modern liberal, um, said that it was referring to Jesus, the son. Mm -hmm. um, and when I just got done reading Justin Martyr, and throughout his entire first and second apologies, when he talks about the word of God, he makes it abundantly clear he's talking about the about Christ. Um, yes. And even in even in the New Testament, I think, you know, John 1 is very explicit it's about Jesus in Acts uh, 17, verse 11, um, where Paul goes to Beraria, having just been kicked out of Thessalonica and says that um, uh, they they received the word of God, the logos of God with more enthusiasm. And they compared it daily to the scriptures, graphe in Greek, uh, to see if what they had said was true. And so the author of Luke even uses uh, the word in Greek uh, that's translated as word of God or message as logos and scripture, which is translated as, uh, or is graphe translated as scripture. He uses those two words differently as if mm -hmm. they're not the same thing. And it may mm -hmm. surprise some people to realize that scripture in Greek is a different word than is used for word of God. Right. Absolutely. And see, yeah, thank you for bringing that out. I love, I love that analogy you had at the beginning, Gabe. That is so great because it's very true. You know, we sort of have this very one-dimensional um, idea of God and the relationship between God and the Bible, or between Jesus and the Bible. That uh, if He's just a man, that's kind of like what we're saying—that He was just a man, and the only way we can know anything about Him is by reading these books about Him and these words that people wrote down. Like he, like you said, like Charles Spurgeon or somebody like that. But if he's the the cosmic Christ, the Word of God, who is God, who was made flesh, right? The the, the logos of the of, of all creation. Then he certainly transcends anything we could say about him. Mm -hmm. Any words that are written in the book, and I, and I love you pointed out this idea, like in Hebrews, where it says, you know, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double edged sword. Penetrating even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, uh, judging thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Oh, wait a minute. Did it switch to talk from talking about a book that we wrote about him to talking about God? No, it was always talking about God. Like that's that's what the word of God is. And and that actually is a really good study to do in the New Testament, especially. I think anytime the phrase word of God is used in the New Testament, it is talking about Christ. 
Now, there are, there's a couple of instances where word of God can mean sort of the gospel message, the, the, the good news of the kingdom. But again, that's associated with the spoken word of Christ. It's a spoken word. It's not written writings. Um, I think you and I talked last time about, um, and I don't know if I'm jumping ahead on your notes here, but. No, go ahead. Uh, we talked, yeah, we talked about, you know, the, the verse in, um, in 2 Timothy about uh, all scripture God-breathed. is God-breathed. That was my next question. Well, good. Hey, look, I'm ahead of the game. Because uh, um, that's the man. That is like the people throw that up all the time, right? Well, the, the Bible says in Second Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for instruction and teaching and rebuke and blah, blah, blah. And, and um, man, people are so glad that verse is in the Bible <laughs> because, because they think that that says the Bible, like that that's a reference to the Bible. But again, like you and I talked before, um, that's not the word like in our again, in our English translations, someone has has rendered that sentence as scripture. But that's not the word for scripture. Like it's actually the word graphis, which is just the word for writings. And so really, I think a, a, a better way to read that verse, if you're going to look at that verse uh, as saying anything, that really what the verse is kind of saying is, is that. All God-breathed writings are useful for instruction and teaching and rebuke. And I would say, yes, they are. Now, that could be some things we read in the Bible, and it could be something I don't read in the Bible. It could be Justin Martyr. It could be Origen. It could be Athanasius. It could be, you know, Brian Zahn, Brad Jerzak. It could, like, in other words, any writing that God has inspired is absolutely um, useful for us, and we should we should see it that way and, and receive it that way. And I think that's truer and closer to what is honestly being said in in that passage. Um, again, I think people want so badly for it to be a verse that's talking about a Bible that was never that wasn't canonized, or even in anyone's imagination at the time that that those words were written. Uh, and don't even get us don't we probably shouldn't even go down the road of saying that. Paul, the Apostle Paul, most likely didn't isn't the guy who wrote that. Yeah, uh, second Timothy. Uh, that that really makes people's heads spin. Um, but but whoever wrote it, Paul or pseudo Paul, uh, th- what they would what that person who wrote Second Timothy would have would have had in their minds as the scripture if they were thinking scripture is probably stuff that you and I would not have considered scripture. You know, all kinds of. St- Stuff that we would have been like, well, that's not scripture. Um, Second Maccabees so, you know, is certainly not, even... not scripture. <laughs> right, right. Yes, or the book of uh, Enoch or... Which is you know, quoted uh, or uh, uh, referenced yeah. in Jude. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And the letter of Barnabas, which isn't in our Bible, but an early Christian writing writer also alluded to the book of Enoch later on. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and like the Shepherd of Hermas, like the Shepherd of Hermas, so many church fathers quoted from that. And many of them considered the Shepherd of Hermas to be like on the level of scripture. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, it didn't didn't make the cut. <laughs> Craig Alert. I'm reading his book right now. If you've ever read that, um, it's a high view of scripture. And he talks it's a, it's about New Testament canon formation and its implications for what we think about the Bible. And, um, and it's authority. And one of the things he points out in that book is that there, the church fathers 
called a lot of other things inspired. Inspiration yep. wasn't something that was restricted to what we now have as the biblical canon. They called bishops inspired. They called other writings outside of what we have as the Bible as inspired. They called councils and their letters inspired. Um, and even um, the and the same word that Paul uses in or not Paul, but whoever wrote Second Timothy three sixteen, that same word is also used by other church fathers to describe other things as inspired that aren't what we consider scripture. Um, he also points out in that book that um, the Hebrew Bible wasn't exactly canonized at the point that the church received it. It's still, we, they still didn't, I don't think it was canonized in the Jewish tradition until like 110. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and, and then even, and then the New Testament wasn't, I mean, wasn't canonized until like the fifth century. Um, and so these things, they get a little bit more complicated than, than we want to, than we want to believe or then we're taught often. Um, second Timothy 316, um, it's important to recognize what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the Bible or the writings are the word of God. It doesn't call them inerrant and the function of them that it describes isn't um to give you knowledge uh, which is actually gnosticism which was an early church heresy the idea that knowledge right. saves you um it wasn't to give you knowledge but the function of scripture was to to teach to rebuke it was it was formation it was mm -hmm. transformation as you talk about in the book mm -hmm. yeah absolutely well i mean i think that's that for me is a big disconnect like i um i have very strong conviction that um, certainly what Jesus is all about and what the disciples and the apostles are all about, and I would even argue the church fathers uh, are all about, is orthopraxy. It's, in other words, taking the truth of the gospel, taking the teachings of Jesus, and putting them into practice. So it isn't, again, about information. It's not about, um, not that ortho orthodoxy is a bad word. Certainly, um, your orthopraxy is informed by the things you believe are true. But it seems that the emphasis is much more on putting these things into practice. So that's why I think it's very obvious why, you know, that verse, um, if you really look at it, like you've said, is, is, is 2 Timothy 3.16 is more about putting in that these writings, these, these um, God-breathed writings are useful for forming our behaviors, right? Uh, helping us to be disciples and followers of Jesus. That that's the point. That's the goal. Um, not so much again that we have the right sort of doctrines and beliefs, but it's more about that we're living in ways that reflect the nature and character of Christ. That that bottom line. That's much more important. And and um, oh, go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna. I was just recalling. I have a friend Joshua Lawson who has a really great uh, quote where he says. Um, says the funny thing about my belief system is that it's always right no matter how many times it changes and and so in other words the the, the points the things I believe are true doctrinally shift I mean they they kind of move around and change I mean mine have over the last 10 15 years you know uh, I, I thought this way and then all of a sudden I realized oh wait a minute no I think I think something different about about this idea of Almost so many things: discipleship, evangelism, uh, ecclesia, um, my view of the end times, 
my understanding of, um, well, this topic, the word of God, uh, my views on the afterlife. Um, you know, so many things have kind of shifted and moved over time. But one thing over, over that same span of time that has never changed is my love and devotion to Christ. And ultimately, that's all that really matters. Like, I don't believe, you know, if there's, if I die and I face the judgment, Jesus is not going to ask me, you know, to pass some sort of theological test. It's not going to be what were my doctrines. It's going to be, and Jesus even says this, right? It's good. The, the, the judgment seat is more about how did you love people? You know, mm. the, the gospel of Christ seep down so much into your life and into your heart that it is this little thing that conceives something, this change, this transformation of your life. That when you walk by somebody who is naked or starving or, you know, alone or in need, did you just keep walking? Or did you, were you, were you, were you unable to do that? Were you, were, did, did the love of Christ compel you to stop and go, Hey man, how are you doing? What can I, how can I, can I serve you? Can I help you? What do you need? Like, like that's ultimately what I believe it's about. And, and if we have all the greatest theology in the world, and we can answer all these questions, right? This is what Paul talks about in First Corinthians, right? If I have all these things lined up, but I don't have love, I'm nothing, mm. right? Yeah, I think this ties in again to how we think about knowledge and how we think about truth. Ten, we think about truth in a post-Enlightenment culture as propositional statements of fact. And so, you know, I believe the sun is, uh, is yellow. I believe in aliens. You know, we, that's how we think about truth. But the church fathers, and even in scripture, we see that truth is not a fact. Truth is a person. Um, in John, right. uh, I think 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, in yep. um, the, I think it's the letter of Dionysius, which is a second century letter. It talks about Jesus as truth. And um, mm-hmm. Gregory Nisa, it talks about Jesus as truth. And so... I think that our understandings of, um, even our understanding of what truth is, uh, has changed and also has, it affects the way we see things. Cause if truth is facts, then doctrine is what saves you, which again is Gnosticism. But if truth is a person, then it's, it's something you embody. And right. that I think ties into what you're saying about, you know, uh, Jesus and Matthew 25, um, uh, blessed are you for when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. That's embodying truth. And that's different um, than just subscribing to some facts and it doesn't really matter how you live. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I do think that's, uh, for me anyway, that more and more it becomes that's what's most important, I believe. Um, Because again, the, the things we believe may alter and change over time but ultimately it's it's who we're connected with right and who we are who our lives are being transformed by like you said jesus is the truth and um and so knowing him and being connected to him I, and i don't want to take us off on a tangent but um i was just reminded the other day of a conversation that i had this is not in the book but um but a couple of times there are places in the New Testament where Jesus uses a phrase, and Paul also repeats this, where he talks about, not about us knowing 
Christ, but about Christ knowing us. And um, I don't have it in front of me right now because I can't remember exactly where it is, but there's a place uh, where Paul talks about that we know Christ and then he stops himself and says, or rather, rather that Christ knows you. And, um, and then Jesus in the old, classically, you know, Jesus talking about how the day will come where someone will say, Oh Lord, we, we know you, we did all these things in your name. And he'll say, I never knew you. And, um, and I think that knowing it, it's again, it's not knowing in the sense of an omniscient God didn't recognize your existence and didn't, you know, couldn't look up your address or something. It's not that. It's more of, again, that intimacy, like that connection was missing. But there is sort of this two-way street. It's not just I know him, which would be information, but it's that he knows me, right, that we have a connection. Like, and I, So I do use this analogy a lot where uh, the difference between information and relationship, you know, like I could know all kinds of trivia about Kobe Bryant. But if Kobe Bryant walked in the room, he wouldn't say, hey, Keith, what's up? Because Kobe and I don't know each other. He doesn't know me, right? <laughs> we haven't we haven't met. We haven't had a connection and a, a conversation and a relationship. And so, um, again, so it transcends this information. Mm. Having all kinds of information about somebody doesn't mean you know them, and it doesn't mean they know you. Yeah. Absolutely. So, okay. So I think the the next question I had, and you talk about this in the book. Um, and so I'll ask it in the form of a question. You can describe what you say in the book, but do we need, um, the Bible and, uh, why or why not? Well, I mean, I do, uh, I love the Bible. Um, I read it all the time. In fact, I, 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 made, I took the time in the beginning of the book to have a whole chapter on how much I love the Bible. Like, look, I got this old Bible I've had for 25, probably 30 years. Uh, it's put together with duct tape. Um, I read it every day. I study it. I write books about it. I write blogs about it. I do podcasts about the Bible. I read books about the Bible. I mean, I, uh, I, I, I'm so I'm not at all saying in my book, Jesus Unbound, you don't need the Bible. The Bible's a waste. The Bible's not what it's all about. Like, I do. I love the Bible. I think the Bible is awesome. But again, I, I think we need to have the right uh, relationship with the scripture. So, um, yes, we need to read the Bible, but we also need to recognize that we don't worship the Bible, right? Um, that it really, it's, it's about Christ. And, um, and I guess it's kind of what you and I have been talking about here. And I, and I try to emphasize this a lot in the book is that, um, again, we, we, we read the Bible to have a relationship with Christ. We don't have a relationship with the Bible, uh, to, that replaces him. So, um, yes, read the Bible. Yes, study the Bible, but also understand, um, I had this big sort of epiphany myself probably five or six years ago. So it hasn't been very, very long ago. Um, the recognition that this really helped me, by the way, to kind of break off my sort of uh, worship of the Bible. Um, most Christians, and I was raised this way, you're, we're taught to have sort of a flat Bible perspective, which means that if it's in that book called the Bible, it's authoritative in your life. And, um, and it's flat in the sense 
that um, just because Jesus says something over here in the New Testament scriptures, um, if I can find something in the Old Testament scriptures that says something different, well, you know, it all has equal weight and authority. Now that gets to be really problematic. And I, and I, oh, I myself wrestled with this for many years. And I had, um, as someone who was leading a church group, I had lots of people come to me over the years and ask me questions about, well, you know, Keith, what do I do about this? Because I know Jesus says this, but you know, Moses says that. Or how do I reconcile these, this tension? Right. And so if you do read the Bible for any length of time and study the Bible in any serious way, you're going to come across those kinds of tensions. And um, if you are a flat Bible Christian, you don't have a lot. You don't have a lot of wiggle room. So what you end up seeing, and I saw this all the time, were just incredible gymnastics to try to try to argue that, well, yeah, it looks like Jesus is contradicting something in the Old Testament, but he's really not. And so here's how he's really not. Um, but I would say he really is. <laughs> and so that, so the perspective that I have, have sort of this, when I kind of discovered it, I didn't invent it. I was doing, I was studying the Anabaptist. I was doing a, a reading of a, a book about the Anabaptist. And, um, I think it's the one called, uh, the reformers and their stepchildren by a guy named Verdun, Leonard Verdun. And in that book, he talks about how the Anabaptist had not a flat Bible perspective, but a Jesus-centered perspective of Scripture. That that Jesus, because he is God the Son, because he is the Word made flesh, that Jesus is our authority. Jesus is the one who sheds light on all Scripture. And so, and, then, and by the way, once you start realizing that, the more I started looking at it, I realized, well, that's what Jesus even tells us. That's what Paul tells us, right? Paul says that, he says, to this day, Whenever they read Moses, a veil covers their eyes, meaning they don't understand, and that the veil remains, and only Christ removes the veil so that through the lens of Christ, we can now read Moses and the Old Testament scriptures, and now we can clearly see the truth. But that means uh, without Christ, if you don't start with him, you are going to misunderstand the Old Covenant scriptures. You're not going to get it. It has to begin with with Christ. So, um, sorry, that's a long answer to your question. But that was the shift for me that helped me uh, make sense of all these things. Mm. Because again, I, I do I do think Jesus shows up and he quite directly uh, will quote Moses and say, "But I say to you," mm. and he does it all through the Sermon on the Mount. He does it all through his ministry, and then, frankly, Paul and the other apostles do so as well. Yeah, so I had a conversation, this reminds me of, um, with uh, a couple of my seminary buds. Um, we Marco Polo, if you know what that is, kind of like Snapchat, but videos. And uh-huh. um, so on one of the, we were talking about uh, that, the synagogue shooting that happened in Southern California um, not too long ago. And the they had read, my friends had read an article about um, his background and his parents were leaders in this church and the church had, quote unquote, correct theology. Um, but something there was something there that obviously did not um, click that violence was not OK, that violence against a people group was not OK. And um, we, we started talking through this. And one of the things that we we. I think kind of discovered along the way was that if you 
the, the, the theology that the Bible is the inerrant word of God implicitly, at least, maybe explicitly, but at least implicitly um, condones um, violence against people groups. Because yep. if you, uh, if the Bible is the inerrant word of God, that means you have a flat Bible. Everything is equally authoritative. And if God spoke at once and in, in, in parts of the uh, Torah, the first five books of the Bible, uh, God is, is recorded as having said, go into these nations and kill these people. He does it in first Samuel with the Amalekites tells, uh, through the prophet, um, Samuel to Saul to go in and kill these Amalekites and totally wipe them out, women, children. And, um, and, and there's ways that people want to make that less bad. You know, they, they, uh, one of them, uh, Paul Copain, an apologist says that, uh, the old Testament uses a lot of hyperbole. And I think that's true. But that still doesn't, even if it all is hyperbole and it doesn't mean they went and killed all the Canaanites, that they left a few of them, that is still, it doesn't fix the problem. It's just a little bit less worse. And so this, I do think that this flat reading of the Bible, this this theology that's the the inerrant word of God, implicitly condones violence against people groups. And so it's no wonder that we have quote-unquote Christians that go into a synagogue and shoot it up, you know? Yep, exactly. Well, and that's exactly right, and that's why I uh, I say this in the book, and I, this has been, become one of my personal um, ma- mantras, <laughs> is the idea that uh, I don't want a more biblical world. I want a more Christ-like world. And then I think if you can, we need, this is why a, a Jesus-centered perspective, I think, is is essential. For, for Christians, for followers of Christ. We have to have a Jesus-centered perspective or, like you just pointed out, it, if you you know, genocide is biblical. Slavery is biblical. Um, patriarchy is biblical. Polygamy is biblical. I can, I can list all sorts of things that I think a follower of Jesus should reject, right? But none of those things are Christ-like. So if I begin with Jesus, and again, I, I think it has to begin with him. Uh, we have to abide in Christ and allow Christ to abide in us. And as Paul says, then that veil is removed. As, as Jesus, as, as the, the Father said uh, on, the, on the Mount of Transfiguration to Peter, James, and John, this is my son, listen to him, right? Not to Moses, who stands for the law, not to Elijah, who stands for the prophets. The Father removed those two guys out of the equation, he left only Jesus, and he said, this is my son, listen to him. And so I want, we need a more Christ-like world, we need a more Christ-like church, um, not a biblical one, because again, biblical means you can justify all sorts of horrible things that people have, and unfortunately, as you, as you pointed out, most recently, people still do. And I read that article too, I read the, the I think the pastor of that church, uh, there was a really, just a very honest quote from him of like, I can't refute this shooter's theology. And that's troubling. And we have to look at what are, what have we done to enable that kind of behavior, right? So there's a behavior that comes from that belief. Again, if you have a biblical basis for your thinking, it's going to justify a behavior that's biblical. But if we have a a basis that's Christ-like, then we have a very different basis for a behavior. 
And if you have a Christ-like basis for your belief, you're going to have a Christ-like basis for your orthopraxy, for your behavior. That means you cannot go and slaughter a bunch of people as they're worshiping, you know, um, in a synagogue. Because that's not something that Christ would ever do or would ever allow us to do. Mm. So, you know, Okay, so I, I wrote a uh, whole article, probably 10, 12 pages, something like that, on, um, I, I think I titled it Christological versus Biblical, in which I argue exactly what you're saying, what you talk about in the book, is that Christianity is not something that is based on the Bible, or should be, but it's based on Christ, and um, we have kind of usurped Christ's throne in a sense and we've subjugated Christ to the Bible um, yep. we interpret the Bible or we interpret Jesus according to the Bible rather than interpreting the Bible according to Jesus which is the opposite of how the early church interpreted the Bible like it, they didn't interpret Jesus through the scriptures they went and they after their experiences with Christ especially after the, the, uh, the resurrection they said, okay, we have to totally rethink our story, the story of Israel, the Hebrew scriptures. And and in that time period, um, their hermeneutic, their way of interpreting the Bible was extremely creative. And so they already had a tool, so to speak, to uh, that enabled them when, when all those events happened and they realized they had to totally rethink everything. They took Jesus and they subjugated the scriptures to Jesus and they remade or reinterpreted the scriptures to fit that new story, that new revelation of Christ. Um, and that's just totally antithetical to how we do things today. That's right. But that is the way to do it. I mean, I had a, I had a realization once um, that, you know, when, it, when, it's, when the scripture says that, you know, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means Moses will also bow his knee. <laughs> mm. You know, um, every writer of Old Testament scripture will bow the knee and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is exactly what we need to do. Like you said, we need to not interpret Jesus through the scriptures. We need to interpret the scriptures and everything through Christ. Um, this is the, what it means to say that Christ is the Logos, that he is that He is before all things, that all things were made by him, for him, and through him. We just say that, um, to say that, even to say that Jesus Christ is Lord, it means not just in a political sense, and not even just in a personal sense, like, he is the standard for reality. And so, how in the, you know, gosh, how would we ever think that we're going to take a book that we wrote about God and make Jesus bow to that. You know, the, how, talk about, talk about, um, pride and hubris, right? Mm. Really? So Jesus is going to bow to what we wrote. He's got to, he's got to obey what we said. No, no, no. We're get, we need to line up with him. We need to know him, abide in him, allow him to change. Again, this whole thing, metanoia, change your way of thinking. We have to experience that that transformation ourselves first, or we are screwed. We have no hope of ever uh, understanding anything unless it's, we start with Christ. Mm. There's a, a church in, um, here in Tulsa, and a lot of churches are like, you know, say the same thing in their statement of faith. But in their statement of faith, um, like a lot of fundamentalist churches, they start with 
scripture. They don't start with God, which I think shows where their priority is. Um, but they, mm-hmm. besides just starting with scripture in their little excerpt on what they believe about scripture, they say that the Bible is the only word of God. What does that, wow. what does that imply? It implies that Jesus is not the word because if the Bible right. is the only word of God, then Jesus the can't be by if, if you do, I mean, I have like a sixth grade math level, but I, I, I know that that's not how the math plays out, you know? Right. So, right. And, and, so, you know, and, and that, I mean, that hits upon, I think, um, I don't want to overstate it, but you know, the sola scriptura, the idea that the Bible is the foundation, and this is what we've been talking about, the idea that the Bible is the foundation of the Christian faith. Um, of course, you know, Bible is going to be the only, the word of God, and it's going to be the only word because the Bible, not God, and and the way that those statement of faith are are written, the Bible is the foundation of their faith, not Jesus. Right, right, and you know, and that's a great point. I mean, those are the kinds of things that drive me crazy when I see people saying, for even even to say um, that you know, um, our our all of our authority is in the Bible. Really? Because when I read the Bible, I read Jesus saying all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, not to the Bible. And and again, these seem like, oh, semantics, but no, they are not. We really are, I, I think we are functionally replacing Jesus with the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. So our ultimate authority is the Bible, not according to the Bible, it's <laughs> Jesus, Right. What's the only way? The Bible is the only way we hear the voice of Jesus. Really? Not according to Jesus and the Bible. He says, all my sheep can hear my voice. Okay. And I'm like, you can do this kind of thing all over the place. And I, and I see this all the time. I try to correct people. I see on Twitter and Facebook, people post memes and make these grand statements about all these kind of things about the Bible. The Bible is our authority. The Bible is the only way to hear the word of God. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. It's like, if you replace the word Bible with Jesus, I could say amen to that. But when you replace um, Jesus with the Bible, that that's it's really screwy. I mean, you know what I mean? Again, it sounds good, it sounds great. Um, I think ultimately, what what Christians who say that are really trying to say, I think if you push them on it, um, I think what they're really trying to say is the Bible. When they say that, when they are saying something grand about the Bible. What they probably mean is the Bible, not the Quran, the Bible, not the Hindu Vedas. You know what I mean? I think what they're trying to say is my religion and, and the book that sort of codifies my religion is the right way and, uh, and, and everybody else is wrong. That, that's probably essentially what they mean. I don't know that they're trying to say, I don't think they're intending to say the Bible is better than Jesus. But functionally, that is what they're saying. In other words, they're not beginning with Jesus. They're not beginning with Christ. And again, but it, 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 you can roll it all the way back up to this this idea of like people being biblical, not being Christ-like. Ultimately, though, when you if you push them on it and you really look at well, what are the things they're teaching and saying? Yeah, it is more biblical than it is Christ-like. Mm. And and I think a lot of this, you know, I. I I almost can hear someone pushing back and saying, but going back to second Timothy three sixteen and even first Peter, I think it's one nineteen through twenty, um, you know, talking about 
you know, but hey, but the Bible is inspired and that means that God wrote it. Um, right. And, you know, I think that's problem. I think that gets problematic really quickly. If we, again, we start looking at Jesus says one thing, Moses says another, if God does not change um, and then, and if God did write it, then those don't fit together. Either God changed um, at some point or God is lying. It, it, it doesn't really work out well. Um, so I think we need to change our, um, our views of inspiration. We need to think differently about how, um, how the Bible is inspired. I don't think we have to get rid of that. I think we just need to change the way we think about it. Um, and, and I do think, um, you and I both know, uh, Thomas J. Ord and he talks about, uh, this idea that God is uncontrolling in God's nature. Um, and I think that his theology has implications for us on inspiration. Um, cause most of us, even those who claim to be Arminian tend to think God is controlling in some respect. And so when we say God is inspired, we often means that God was controlling the authors of scripture. It was God writing through them and they were just the instrument. Um, right. and, but, but if, you know, but if God is uncontrolling, then it starts to, you know, God can't control people. He can't have written scripture. It must be writing about him. I don't know if maybe you could uh, speak to that a little bit. Well, yeah. Well, I think, um, and thank you. I'm glad you brought us back around to this question because I think it's a key component to the conversation is this, what do we mean when we say something is inspired, right? And and, and it could fundamentally just boil down down to that. Like if, if we have been a disagreement, if someone's listening to you and I talk right now and they're they're screaming and pulling out their hair and and pushing the heresy button, um, it's probably because we are dealing with two different views, not just again of the scripture, biblical versus Christ-like, but probably a different definition of inspiration. So um like for me, um uh, if I were uh if I was driving down the road, and this has happened to me, this is real, driving down the road, listening to music I hear a song, not even a Christian song. It can just be a song, you know, just on the radio. Um, and I, something in the lyrics, something is spoken to me, it, and it moves me, and um, it touches me, and it um, and it inspires me, right? Then I might tell you about it later, and I'll say, Gabe, I was driving down the road, and I heard this song, and it wasn't even a Christian song. But, you know, in that moment, I really felt like through that song and the words of that song, God, the creator of the universe, and I'm not kidding, I really believe this. That God, the creator of the universe, spoke to me in that moment through that song on the radio, and it, it was a profound, life-changing word, uh, encouragement that God spoke to me through that song. And I could say the same thing about a scene in a movie or a poem that I read or even a conversation that I've had over with, with a friend over coffee, where I feel like it, someone will say something in a conversation, and it'll just be like an arrow in That was inspired from for me right now. You just spoke something that was inspired by. So now, what do we mean by that? When I say that something is inspired, um, like for that song on the radio, for example, do I mean that? Do I mean that God, the Creator of the universe, spoke to me something true through that the lyrics of that song? Yes. Well, does that mean if that song was inspired by God in that moment? Does that mean God wrote the song? No, God didn't write the song. Alanis Morissette wrote the song. 
right? Does that mean that song is infallible or inerrant? No, it's a song, right? That, those, those are the wrong questions to ask. Is it inerrant? Is it infallible? That, that's the wrong question. The question to ask is, did God, the creator of the universe, use that word or, or that song or that whatever to speak to me something powerful and true in my life that I needed in that moment? Yes. That's inspiration. For me, that's what I mean when I say something is inspired. Yeah, and, and, and no, I totally agree. Um, and that, I would say, that's an incarnational view of inspiration. Uh, yep. C.S. Lewis, you know, you quote C.S. Lewis, I think, in, in the very beginning of the book. Um, and C.S. Lewis, for those of you who don't know, um, did not think the Bible was the word of God. He thought Jesus was the word of God. And, yep. uh, but there, but there's another, there's another quote, I don't think you have this from him in the book, but there's another quote where he talks about, um, he's talking about inspiration. And he says that, again, that the Bible is, is not the word, but the Bible is almost the, Jesus makes the Bible the vehicle for which carries himself. Um, right. And that, I think, Christ can do in anything. Karl Barth, you know, um, had a similar view, and he said, um, he said essentially that you know Christ can speak through a dead donkey if he wants to, um, and so there this idea that Jesus as incarnation, not necessarily the incarnation of God into human flesh, but that that incarnation showing us the nature of God, that God is incarnational, that God meets us uh, in the moment where we're at in our understanding. Um, that would imply, I think, to me, that God can use a song while you're driving down the radio and speak, can implant himself into yeah. the words and, and bring you to himself through those words, even if those words are not made by him. Right. And it doesn't mean, uh, so even if that does happen and I have that amazing experience like that, am I going to then go and take those words and, you know, scribble them into the back and stick them in my Bible? Like, no. I'm not going to start quoting, you know, the gospel of that song or that poem or whatever. I mean, that is, I mean, I might share it with somebody. I might say, God used this to speak to me. But that's different than saying, thus saith the Lord, right? Um, I, I think there's a quote, uh, there's a second quote by C.S. Lewis in my book, and this may be the one you were talking about. Uh, it's on page 118. He says, my own position, this is C.S. Lewis, my own position is not, Fundamentalist, if fundamentalism means accepting as a point of faith at the outset the proposition every statement in the Bible is completely true in the literal historical sense. That would break down at once in the parables. All the same common sense and general understanding of literary kinds which would forbid anyone to take the parables as historical statements carried a very little further would force us to distinguish between books like Acts or the account of David's reign, which are everywhere dovetailed into a known history, geography, and genealogy. Books like Esther or Jonah or Job, which deal with otherwise unknown characters living in unspecified periods, and pretty well proclaim themselves to be sacred fiction. Such distinctions are not new. Calvin left the historicity of Job and other question. And earlier, St. Jerome said that the whole Mosaic account of creation was done after the fact. Of course, I believe the composition, presentation, and selection for inclusion in the Bible of all books to have been guided by the Holy Ghost, but I think he meant us to have sacred myth and sacred fiction, as well as sacred history. Um, so again, I think that's a, just again a more nuanced view of what we have 
And again, this is kind of backing up even more. Like, what do we have when we pick up a Bible? What are we holding? Um, A friend of mine used an analogy once, which I think is very appropriate. Like if I got a, if I had delivered to my front door um, today's edition of the New York Times, I could say this is the New York Times. Um, this is one newspaper, and, and I would be correct. Everything in that bundle of paper is the New York Times for today, and it is all the New York Times. However, I don't read the front page the way I read the comic section. I don't read the classifieds the way I read the opinion section. Right? I don't read the sports page the way I read you know, the, the Wall Street report. In other words, I understand that even though I have one New York Times contained in the New York Times, some of it is fiction, some of it is opinion, some of it is comedy, some of it is story, some of it is just, you know, bare information. So again, when we read the Bible, we have to understand that too. We were coming to a book, some of it's poetry, some of it's history, some of it's fiction. So, you know, like it's not all intended to be. We've made it, unfortunately. Um, it's all got to be historically, like it's all got to be basically a documentary. Mm. It's not all a documentary. And I've heard Christian pastors say this from the pulpit, and they're not doing themselves any favors. Um, you know, one word of this isn't true, factually, you know, true, historically true, then all of it is false, and we should throw it all out. What a stupid statement, because I can demonstrate up probably have several things that may not be um, scientifically, historically true, but that does not mean it's not profitable for teaching instruction, you know, rebuke and all these things. Of course it is. Um, and then I think a lot of Christians, uh, unfortunately, take their pastor at their word when they say this kind of things, and then when they do see what they think is a contradiction or a mistake, or, you know, something that's problematic. Well, then that pastor told them if one part falls, it's all false. Right, now they have permission to just dump the whole thing. Yeah, uh, I've heard the exact same thing. Um, I don't know if you heard it from a Southern Baptist pastor, um, but I, yeah. I heard it from a Southern Baptist pastor as well um, at the church I was interning in Seattle that I got kicked out of. Um, and he said the exact same thing. You know, he held up his Bible and he said, this is the inerrant word of God. If one thing in this is, is, is with error, then the whole thing is with error. And I thought to myself, you know, like, like you said, that's complete nonsense. What book in the entire world, any book in the entire world, why would you take it and be like, oh, it's got one error. I, everything in here is bunk. I can't listen to it. Like, it's just, you wouldn't do that with any other book in the entire world. Um, and and I guess I, I want to be somewhat fair because I think from a fundamentalist position, um, the reason why they do that is because they see it as God's, God is the author. God is the one that wrote that. And since God is, um, is not a liar, does not lie, God is true, then that sure. means that God, it, all, if it has an error, then, you know, then it, it's not written by God, which... I think, you know, leads us to, okay, well, maybe it's not written by God, but, right. but maybe it doesn't need to be. Right. No, that, see, that's great. That's beautiful because you can, you can trace the logic of how they get to such a statement, but then if you keep tracing the same logic, then you arrive at a different conclusion, which is that, well, since it does have some different, no, again, just the fact that even different you know different people wrote different books and you know again the jewish a lot of jewish believers are 
they're very clear on this when it comes to their own the old, old Testament scriptures, right? The Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible. They understand that this is a collection of conversations. This is a, these are, these are a, it's a book. It's a collection of different views and perspectives, right? So if you ask, if you ask the question, well, um, does God require animal sacrifice? Well, Moses is going to tell you yes. Isaiah is going to tell you probably not, right? Hosea is going to say, no, God doesn't want those things. David's going to say, God never, never, you know, the, the blood of bulls and goats never satisfied me. So, but that's okay. That's not, that's not grounds for throwing the entire thing out. Yeah, it's valuable to see that, well, this guy over here, this was his view of God, right? Abraham saw God this way. Moses saw God that way. Isaiah saw God this other way. David saw God a different way. All of those perspectives are valuable. There's no reason, we shouldn't throw any of it out. Now, it doesn't mean that I need to say that because it's in the Bible, therefore it's all quote-unquote true. In other words, not everything that Moses assumed was true about God is, I would say, is true. Hmm. And why do I say that? Because I'm looking through the lens of Christ. And I see Jesus um, showing us like this, this audacious statement in the Gospel of John. It says, no one had ever seen God at any time except for the Son. And the reason he came was to reveal the Father to us. This is the implication of everything Jesus says. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The reason he came was that these other the prophets and these other people, um, maybe they, they, were, they were giving us the best picture they could, they could possibly give us of how they could see, understand God. But this incredible statement in John is that they didn't see, they never really saw clearly who God really was, but Jesus did. And that's why Jesus came. And, he, and so Jesus showed us successfully for the first time ever, finally, we finally can see that's who the father is because he's like Jesus. And when Jesus tells us the story of the prodigal son, he tells us this beautiful story of a loving father who is not waiting for an excuse to smack us and punish us and rub our nose in it and grind us into the ground. He is waiting for, for, the, for the chance to embrace us and receive us and have a throw a party because we've come, we've returned to him, right? This is who, who the father is. This is what Jesus does as he shows us clearly, you know, and we should, we rejoice in that. And, and this is one of the, even one of the ways why it's even valuable, I think, to, to, yes, we hang on to the Old Testament scriptures because, well, there's a whole lot of messianic prophecy that Christ fulfills and we can look back and say, look at that. That's amazing. Look at this, you know, Psalms 22 or Isaiah. This is incredible. Um, but also where we can see the contrast, right? Where we can see, well, God, people used to think God was like this. And then Jesus goes up and says, he points to the exact same thing and says, no, God is not like that. Even, even to the degree of, um, when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells them the basis for Jesus telling us to love our enemies and turn the other cheek and bless those who curse us is because that's how God treats everyone. Because God lets it rain, he says, on the just and the unjust, which is a direct contradiction to what Moses said about God. Because Moses told Hey, uh, say that again. You you broke up. That's 
Jesus is saying, uh, sorry, Moses, you're wrong about it. You're wrong about it. Sorry, we're having some technical difficulties. You were starting to break up. Yeah. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I, I, I got you. Yeah, so I, I mean, I don't know how much of that was picked up on the recorder, but I mean, those are such great points. Um, so I want, I want to move on. Um, I want to respect your time, and I think we're we're a little over an hour, so I think I'll end with this question. I think it's a good Indian question. So C.S. Lewis calls the Bible the Word of God. Karl Barth calls the Bible. Sorry, no, no, no. Sorry. C.S. Lewis calls Jesus the Word of God, not the Bible. Karl Barth does the same. Um, George MacDonald, who you quote in here, does the same. Um, I would say the New Testament um, and the early church does the same. Brian's, if we're talking about today, Brad Jersak, you, Brian Zahn are saying the same thing. So do you think that there's a new generation, so to speak, that's reclaiming the word of God, that's reclaiming Jesus as this word? I that's, really hope so. That's liberating the word of God from the Bible. Yeah, I I really hope so, my friend. I really do. I think, um, but I do think that's happening. In fact, it's funny because I had a conversation with Greg Boyd about that exact thing. Um, about the fact that you know he was telling me he says yeah Keith it kind of seems like there's this new wave happening it's really exciting and it seems like it's happening with millennials with younger people but really embracing this idea of a more Christ-like God and, and less of a biblical one right and um, I I hope so because I think it's our only hope I, I think we need to embrace that we need to loosen our grip on sort of the tyranny of the Bible. And um, and submit ourselves more willingly to the yoke of Jesus, which is the burden is easy and the, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. And it, it, it leads us to a much, much better, uh, not just even for ourselves personally, but I think for the church. I, I long for a more Christ-like church. You know, it, it does kind of. You were talking about, you know, these, these churches you've seen near you. And I'm in Boise, Idaho. It's like a, like a mecca for, you know, uh, fundamentalist Christianity uh, and Mormons between the two. But I drive down the road and I'm, I almost every other corner is a is a so-and-so Bible church. Mm. And I always think, why? You have a church of the Bible. <laughs> like you literally are just saying we're a Bible church. We're a church of the Bible. Um, gosh, I, I hope we could start moving into a more Christ-like one. Uh, I do feel like more voices are, are leading that way, going in that direction. Um, and then, you know, just even what recently, Rachel Hell Evans, who died yesterday, uh, you know, her last book was Inspiration. And, um, her, I think, and, we, and I was blessed to be able to talk with her about that book right when it came out. Um, you know, again, so I think those are those are beautiful examples uh, of voices that are leading us to rethink the Bible and better yet rethink who Jesus is and what Jesus was all about. And uh, I'm, I'm can't it can't happen fast enough. Yeah, I agree. Well, uh, thanks so much, Keith, for coming on. Um, I, I want to keep you on Skype for just a couple minutes after we pause this, if that's OK. Um, yep. but 
if you haven't read Jesus Unbound, Liberating the Word of God from the Bible, um, I can't recommend it enough. Um, it is uh, talking about this paradigm shift from, from a uh, biblical Christianity to a a Christianity, Christianity. Um, it, it, I, th- I think it's, um, it's a great critique for where we're at right now as inheritors of fundamentalism and that, that, uh, ideology that the Bible and God are pretty much the same thing. Um, so pick up the book. Um, I hope you don't regret it. Um, if, if you're a fundamentalist and you read the book, you may be like, oh man, this, this is terrible. But, um, uh, maybe if you're a fundamentalist and you're reading the book, you need the critique. So, um, I hope you learn something from it. Anyway. So, uh, thanks for listening to the Misfits Theology podcast. Is there anything else you want to say real quick before we pause? Oh, I would just say, yeah, well, I would just say real quick to that point. Like, I, I tried really hard writing this book, um, to speak to people who are those fundamentalists who I know are going to disagree with me. Um, and it's hard to do, but I, I would say if you are, are a fundamentalist and, and, and you think what you want, what, what Gabe and I are talking about is like, again, heresy button and this is, this is out there. I think if nothing else, if you read Jesus Unbound, you may not agree with me at the end, but I think I'll, you'll definitely have some things to think about and to wrestle with. Um, and so if you don't mind having your faith, uh, as I say, sort of like put on the anvil and, and, and submit to the hammer a little bit, uh, it's important to do that. Again, it's not just to see the sparks fly. It's to test whether or not your convictions are really solid or not. And I think if you do, if you are brave enough to read my book, um, that you will have some things that will that will challenge you, things that will, I think, lead you back to the Bible and ask you to ask some questions that you are worth asking. So, hmm. you know, there you go. You said that much better than I could. <laughs> so uh, we'll keep listening, guys, and uh, we hope to have you back here again. Thanks. All right. Thanks, man.